0: You guys sing too fast. (laughs) That must be it. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 5. You guys are giving me a heart attack. The most unsettling thing is to see Steve or Brandon in the back of the room. As they come fetch me. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, I thank you for the opportunity to talk about your word. I pray, Father, that we might learn from Nehemiah, that we might apply the things of Nehemiah to our lives. Father... uh, been a good couple months already. and You have more to share with us through this man. May we learn well. To the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Like many of you, I have had the privilege a number of times to go to the third world. The third world is the under-resourced, undeveloped, the part of the world where individuals suffer because of their skin color, their nationality, or where they were born. I remember the privilege uh, several decades ago of visiting Ethiopia. I was there to train some pastors, and I remember One particular day, I had been out in the village and had met a man, and he wanted me to come back to his grass hut, his one room grass hut. And he showed me this grass hut with such pride, you would have thought it was a 10 room palatial mansion. And he showed me his possessions. I don't know, there might have been 10 total possessions. I can think of five of them. There was a coffee pot, and there were four small little porcelain cups of which you would serve Ethiopian coffee, which is like two-thirds part sugar, one-third part coffee, and the hottest water that you can possibly imagine. And it's a little cup like this, and I mean, the coffee is so strong, and it is so sweet that when he says, would you like another cup, you say yes, but you don't really want one, but it's the right thing to do. And I remember looking in, and, and this man was giving me the best that he had, and he had possessions that were smaller than the smallest of garage sales. In fact... I would estimate what he owned was less than 20 U.S. dollars, and I remember asking the missionary I was with, could I leave a couple gifts behind because I wanted in some way to better his life. I remember seeing the slums of Manila. As a child, I spent a few years in Asia with my family, and, and then I've gotten to see the slums of Manila as adult. And the squalor and the poverty and the smell, it just takes your breath away. I remember living in Manila, and my parents set such a good example. They hired a gardener and they hired someone to clean the house. Honestly, I think they were full time Jeff keepers. It takes an army to raise certain kids. But did my parents really need a gardener? They didn't. Did they really need someone to clean the house? They didn't. But they gave income with dignity to several individuals. People who had nothing that we could provide something for and to in exchange for their labor. I remember going to the Dominican. Some of you have been there to Dominican or Haiti. I remember it was a Sunday. uh, Three pastors, myself and two others, had gone there to teach a pastoral conference. And it was Sunday, and my recollection is we had preached in churches that morning, and I think we were gonna preach in churches that evening. But in the middle of the day, we went out to the bates, modern-day slavery, The Bittes are owned by sugar plantations. They don't allow school to be run in the bates because they don't want the next generation to be educated and therefore to be qualified to leave the bates to have a better job. And so these kids grow up in squalor. They grew up in ignorance, illiterate, so that they can provide work to cut down all the sugar came for generations to come. And I remember at the service of the Bataes, my two pastor friends each preached a little, and then I preached a lot. That's why I keep coming in late from traditions. And so I kind of went on, and then the best sermon was preached that morning. It wasn't by one of the three of us. In fact, it wasn't by a single person It was watching these individuals in squalor, in destitution, worship God and praise God and exalt God in conditions that we can't even imagine. And it was the best sermon of the morning, in fact, one of the best sermons I've ever seen in my life. And all three of these examples have in common what I shared at the beginning, it's people in squalor and destitution because of their skin color, because of their nationality, and because of where they were born. And that's exactly what we see in Nehemiah chapter 5. Let me remind us of the scene. Jerusalem, a word that means peace, the city of peace, has been destitute for 141 years. It's been destitute since 605 and 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of Babylon, came, ransacked the walls, destroyed the Temple Mount, left the city in ruins, lives in ruins. And for 141 years, the city of the great king has lied in ruins and the nations around have mocked the God of Jerusalem, the God of the world, the only one true God, because the city lays in ruins. And so after 141 years, God lays it on the heart of a man named Nehemiah, who is 800 to 1,000 miles away. He is the cupbearer for the most powerful monarch on the face of the earth. King Artaxerxes, it makes him prime minister. It makes him number two in the world, living in the citadel of Susa. And God lays it on his heart to go back to the city of his ancestry where he has probably never been before, to travel 800 to 1,000 miles, to go back to rebuild the walls in 52 days, and then to remain for another dozen years as the governor. And he's going to govern people who because of their skin color, because of their ethnicity, because of where they are born, their lives are in squalor and ruins. Let me pick up in the text. I want to read from chapter 5. We'll look at verses 1 to 5. Now there are rows. A great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. And now we're introduced to the first of three groups. For there were those who said, this is group number one. I take it that this group are the landless peasants. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Group number two, verse three. There were also those who said, group number two is a group of individuals who are subsistence farmers. They have an acre or two, certainly not enough to provide for their families. And they say, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. Verse four, and there were those, I think these are the mid-sized farmers. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on the fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Let's consider what's going on. It's the month of Elul. That means it's August, September, almost certainly September. It's harvest time. It's a time period when you will repay all of your loans because of the bumper crop that you're expecting God to give. But what we have with the first group, we have individuals who are essentially indentured servants, they're the landless class. They rent their shack. They rent the food for all year. They rent the seed to plant in somebody else's field. And when the harvest comes, they hope against hope to repay the loans. But remember, for the last 31 days, they've been working without wages on the walls. 31 days when they continue to borrow money, and yet nothing is coming in, and there's really no hope that they can repay the loans. The second group... They are the subsistence farmers. They own an acre or two. They too have been borrowing, and yet the verse tells us a drought has hit. For the last 30, 31 days, they've been working on the wall. They've expected the final rains to come, the crops to be good. Then they go out and harvest. They repay for the seed and the fertilizer, for the land, their taxes, And for all that they have borrowed in the last 11 months, they're hoping for a bumper crop, but a drought has hit, and they're crying out in pain and concern. The third group we would expect to do the West, but really they don't. It's the mid-sized farmers. Understand that Persia is actually in control of Jerusalem, and Artaxerxes is a tax and spend politician. We know, we know that in this time period, he was taxing Jerusalem and the landowners based on acreage between 35 and 40 million dollars annually. 2,000 years ago, actually, 2,500 years ago. 35 to 40 million dollars. And you pay by acreage. And these men have been working on the wall for 30, 31 days. There's a drought. They've been borrowing for 11 months. There's no help. And there's a cry from the people. Verse 1 says, they cried out the women and the men. They're destitute. But notice verses 1, 4, and 5, who they cry against. It's not God, it's not the drought, it's not Artaxerxes, it's not Persia. They cry against their own Jewish brethren. Understand what's going on. We have a few Jews with deep pockets. And rather than distribute money, or rather than loan money at very low rates, usury is going on. It's payday loan exponential interest. Jews taxing Jews into utter destitution and slavery. Interestingly enough, in verses 4 and 5, there are two words used for slavery. The first, the slaves of the, the sons and the daughters, is a normal word. It's what you would expect when you would sell somebody into slavery and they'd have to work either the rest of their life or a certain amount of time to gain their freedom. But the second word, the word used of the daughters, is from the same etymology, the same root family system, as used in Esther chapter 7, verse 8, when King Xerxes accuses Haman of molesting his wife Esther. You know what this word suggests? Jews are loaning exorbitant amounts of money to fellow Jews, and rather than foreclose, they're saying, We're going to take your daughters and we're going to molest them as interest. No wonder verse 1 says, A great cry. Is from the people. No wonder, verse 6, has Nehemiah saying, I was very angry. He's enraged. Why shouldn't he be? This is righteous anger. This is someone made in the imago day in the image of God, who's being molested, who's being raped by taxing people exorbitantly and then using daughters as temporarily interest pieces. To stop immediate foreclosure. Do you know what God says in the Old Testament to his people about loaning one to another? Let me read from Leviticus 25, 35, 6, 39, and 40. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, He shall live with you, take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God. Fear God and care for the least of these, that your brother may live beside you. Verses 39 and 40. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee, the 50th year in which all debt is freed, released, paid or unpaid. The debts are canceled. Let me read Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering in to take possession of it. It was a violation of Jewish law to charge interest to a fellow Jew. You were to provide for them, care for them, as though they were a stranger on a journey that stopped at your house. And you invite them in and you feed him, you drink him, and then you send them on the way. That's how you would provide for your own People. Nehemiah's rage in verse 6 is fully justified. This is righteous anger, and we ought to have righteous anger when we see God's laws violated, when we see people made in the Imago Dei and the image of God violated. We ought to have righteous anger when we see individuals in our own country getting together based on a skin color. And pushing against people who do not have the same skin color as inferior or superior to others. This is wrong. And it ought to make our blood boil. So, how should we respond? I love verses seven and eight. This is wisdom from the Lord to us. Verse seven I took counsel with myself. Do you know what that means? That's a Hebraic idiom that means instead of responding, instead of giving someone a piece of my mind, instead of giving the silent treatment, instead of calling names, instead of insulting, instead of being bombastic, instead of uh, just losing emotional control, he steps back, he prays, he consults with God, he asks God, what would you like me to say? How would you like me to say it? How would you like me to proceed To stand up for those who are being mistreated. How would you like me to do this in a God-centered, God-glorifying way? I took counsel in myself. I love this. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I love this. These are individuals who are at the highest echelons who are being held accountable for the way they're acting towards others. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from your brother. And I held a great assembly against them and I said to them, we as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and they could not find a word to say. I love this. I spoke counsel, I mastered my feelings. Before I responded, I thought through, I prayed through, I handled it in a dignified, godly, God-centered way. Oh, how we desperately need this as a nation, as a world, in families, in marriages, with children, with parents, At work, we desperately need to counsel with ourselves and ask God to allow us a measured, wise, God-glorifying response. I think of Dr. Gene Getz. Some of you know him. A measure of a man, perhaps you've read. Dr. Getz was one of my professors and a mentor in my life. He was the pastor of Fellowship Church. He also taught at Dallas Theological Seminary he tells the following story. He says, uh, I was at a Cowboys game. They were playing the Cardinals. And the man in front of me was a drunk. He was just out of control. He had had way too much to drink. And worse yet, he was a Cardinals fan. And every time the Cowboys advanced the ball, he would stand up and yell four-letter words And I didn't want to hear the four-letter words. And worse, he was blocking my vision of the field. So after a while, I stood up and I gave him a piece of my mind. Justified, right? And the man turned around and he took some swings at me. And I decided to defend myself. I wasn't swinging back. I was defending myself. And to a casual observer who arrived late at the scene, it could have looked like I started the fight. Well, the casual observer happened to be a law enforcement officer who threatened to arrest me. Imagine what it would have looked like the next morning on the Dallas early news, the morning news. Mega church pastor, professor at Dallas Seminary, engaged in drunken brawl. (laughs) That would have gone very well, as you can imagine. Our anger can drive us to do things out of control, out of measure. Here we have a man that is right. He's right to have anger towards unrighteousness. But he counseled with himself. He prayed, he paused, he thought, he planned, he prepared. He handled himself with dignity. When you and I find ourselves seeing something that we are rightly angered towards, we need to counsel with ourselves. We need to ask God to give us wisdom and the words and the demeanor and the tone and the tenor. I remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 28 and 29. He says, in your anger, do not sin. And then he goes on to say, do not give Satan a foothold in your life. I remember what is written in one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 26, 4 and 5. I'll read it to you. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own mind. Now you probably say, What? Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own mind. What do you do? I mean, should I answer the fool? Should I not answer the fool? Remember hermeneutically how we understand different genres of Scripture that Proverbs are not promises. They're general wisdom truths that are true at least 50% and often more often than that in our lives. These are placed side by side so that we might understand how to answer a fool. You answer a fool if the fool can be reasoned with. You answer a fool if the fool is going to listen. You don't answer a drunken fool because she or he is not in a condition to listen. That was the problem with Dr. Gatz. He Juxtapose juxtaposed the two principles, and he decided, you know what? He's drunk. He's a fool. I'm going to talk to him. No, no, no. Wait till he's sober. If he's a drunken fool, go get the authorities. Find another seat. Put up with it. But someone who's drunk is a fool who is not ready to listen to wisdom. And so Nehemiah, what does he do? He counsels with himself. He sees wrong. He's not going to ignore wrong. He has righteous anger. He counsels with himself. He asks God to give him the wisdom to respond well. He understands what Paul will write. In your anger, do not sin. Do not give Satan a foothold in your life. And he understands what kind of fools he's dealing with, and he deals according to them. This is how you and I need to handle life. And he does it so well. And by God's grace, what is the response? Silence. I I love this. Let me read it to you. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Understand that Nehemiah is dealing with individuals who are power brokers. He's dealing with the very people he will need over the next decade plus to govern the area. And yet they have wronged people. He calls them to justice but he handles the situation well, and the response is they have nothing to say. Do you know people like that? My Betty Ann is like that. In 34 years of knowing Betty Ann, I have probably heard my wife yell five times, and she's married to me. (laughs) Think about that five times maybe, she's not insulting, she's not bombastic, she's not belittling, she doesn't call people by names, she's just measured and calm. And so when she calls you to account, you know that it is God working through her to me. Oh, by the way, those five, they were at the kids, not, you know, just going to say... Want to, want, want to clear the air with real truth. Maybe. When you have individuals who know how to handle themselves well, there's no real response. Let's finish the chapter. I want to read verses 9 to 13. Starting in verse 9. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good, Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Why does he return to Jerusalem? It's not to rebuild the walls for the people. That's secondary. It's not to build good lives in their lives. That's secondary. Those are real. Those are true. The primary reason is the glory of God. The primary reason is because the nations around are taunting the name of God because this is the city of the great king. He's giving us a hint of how I ought to live. I ought to live. I ought to walk for the glory of God. My primary purpose here on earth is to live for God's glory, to honor God, to exalt God, to point people to God. That's where I revive Wisconsin encouraging us to share the gospel because there are people who do not know about the glory of God. Verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Don't you love that? When Nehemiah shows up and he rebuilds the walls, he puts on his bib overalls. He grabs a hammer and he starts hammering. When he says, you know what, we need to work during the day and and we need to guard the city by night, he takes his turn. He's going to work all day and stay up all night because he's one of them. When he says, you can't exact interest, he opens up his own coffers and said, I'm going to make some interest-free loans. I've got some spare and I'm going to help the brethren. Follow me. Verse 11. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their old, olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. In other words, today is the day of change. We're not going to talk about change. We're going to do it. We're not just going to confess, agree with God. There's going to be repentance. There's going to be transformation. There's going to be change. And maybe that's where all of us are today. Maybe for some, there's immorality in our lives. And today is the day of change. Not just agree with God, today is the day of change. Maybe we don't handle our anger well. Maybe today is the day that we get Gary Chapman's book on anger. I'd highly recommend it. You can read it in one hour. If you can't read it in two hours, I'll pay for it. Or you go back to school, one or the other. (laughs) Today is the day of change, transformation. He says, Return to them this very day, Jeff. Don't just agree with God, confess, repent, change, do what's right, live generous lives. Verse 12. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and I made them, the people, swear to do as they had promised. You see, Nehemiah knows me. It's not enough for me to confess or even to begin to repent, to change. He knows I need accountability in my life. So he says, the priests are going to be the accountability factors to make sure that the interest is repaid and the people are provided for. And we care for the least of these. Verse 13, I also shook out the fold of my garment. Man, this seems overkill. That's the sign of the prophets. He's acting in a prophetic role at this point, And said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. In other words, God... I not only need to confess and begin to repent and need accountability, but, Lord, bring discipline into my life if I don't make the change. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Man, do I want to be a Nehemiah. I suspect that you want to be a Nehemiah, a woman, a man of incredible integrity. A woman who brings justice when we see wrong in our world. A man, a woman who doesn't just ignore injustice but gets involved. An individual who puts on their bib overalls and goes and rebuilds the wall. Who works in the day and guards at night. An individual who opens up their pocketbook to the least of these. An individual who doesn't just say, go and do, but says, let's go together and do. And it's all about God's glory. It's because the city of the great king lies in ruins and our enemies around are wondering what kind of God this is. And we go and tell and show them the greatness of our God. I need to be a Nehemiah. You need to be a Nehemiah. Let's pray, otherwise I'm going to be late to Weston as well. <laughs> Father God, we want to be Nehemiah's. Women and men of integrity. Women and men who are engaged in ministry. Women and men who don't just say go, they say let's go. Women and men who yearn for your glory. Glory. To be spread among the peoples and among the nations. Women and men who don't look at skin color or ethnicity or origin of birth, but look at someone made in the imago day in the image of God and value that person accordingly. Allow us to be Nehemiahs.